This is a presentation of the Pitch Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Streetwise Podcast, an extension of the Pitch in Kansas City. I am your host and the editor-in-chief of the Pitch, Mr. Brock Wilbur. How is everybody out there? How have you been? Uh, you might have noticed there haven't been a lot of streetwises uh, in in the last couple of weeks. We've had some some big busy stuff happening, and uh, we are about to wrap that all up. You will get to hear about some big changes to the pitch and how things operate very very soon, and I cannot wait to share it with you. It is both. Uh, very, very exciting and also horrifying, and I cannot wait to uh, wax uh, poetic about it on here with you. Um, like many of you in Kansas City, I I am currently glued to what is hopefully the resolution of the Kevin Strickland case. If you are outside of Kansas City, Kevin Strickland is a black man uh, who was convicted of a triple homicide 40 years ago, and almost since the beginning... Everyone involved has been like, he wasn't there. Uh, the other guys that were convicted of, of having done the murder, they're like, that guy wasn't there. The eyewitness who placed him there, who is the only any the only evidence in his original trial, uh, spent the rest of her life trying to recant that because she knew that she didn't see him there. Uh, and even the, the prosecutors <laughs> of of uh, Kansas City have been like, yeah, we we all agree that there's absolutely no reason this man should be in jail, and yet we can't seem to get him out of jail. And so uh, part of that also comes from a Republican AG in Missouri who tried to fight to keep this from going anywhere as some sort of weird political maneuver. I... I I just... Uh, it's It seems like it's near the end here, and that he will finally get to see the light of day after being the the longest wrongfully incarcerated person in the history of the country, it sounds like. So that's one that I, I think is is capturing all of our attention because it's also one of those that if like if we can't pull it off, it says a lot about us at this point where even even the prosecutors and and the, every everyone is like, no, he shouldn't be there, but we can't get him out somehow. Um, I don't know. This is uh this has led me down a path where I've been spending a lot of time looking at how we um, deal with covering justice in a journalistic way, uh, and and how we look into areas here that that should be obvious to other people. Uh, a couple of months back, uh, for a uh, interview at the podcast Pod Save the People, which I produced, um. We got to do an interview with Dr. Jessica S. Henry. She wrote a book called Smoke But No Fire, Convicting the Innocent of Crimes That Never Happened, uh, which is about the history of no crime wrongful convictions, which is basically um, a step further into this, which is about all the people that we've put into jail or even put to death over crimes that didn't happen, that just never happened, that somebody like thought up but then we realized later like that wasn't a thing but that didn't stop us from taking it to trial and convicting these people um there's a long history of it and it continues today uh i highly recommend smoke but no fire because it's a uh 
you know, you, you hear lots of shocking indictments of our system, uh, but this one is is truly a cartoonish indictment of our system. Uh, the stories in it are, are, are just horrifying, um, but they feel in line with somebody being behind bars for 40 years where even the other murderers and the police are like, uh, I'm not sure why. Like, uh, you can't just let them out, but like, uh, hmm. Uh, I also recently on the website uh, ran an interview with Jenna Friedman. Uh, she is a comedian that I've long, long adored. She used to be a producer on The Daily Show and then worked on the Borat movies. So I think you get the sense of what kind of interviewer she is. She's somebody that really likes to keep a straight face while asking questions that really give people enough rope to hang themselves in a very darkly comedic way. She has a new show called True Crime Story Indefensible, um, and the whole series is about men that murdered women and got away with it because of flaws in our justice system. And so uh, as opposed to most people in the the comedy murder content true crime space that will like read a Wikipedia and make jokes about it at often I feel the expense of victims. Uh, what Jenna does with this show is she explains the story of a case each episode and then goes and interviews the people that are sort of the ones that allowed this to occur that no one would ever think to talk to, like to speak to expert witnesses that are clearly not experts in any field and will clearly show up to say just about anything for whoever pays them, uh, to talk to people that are paid $100 a day, a couple days a month to sit on parole boards and have never been given any formal training or instructions, so they keep letting people go free. Um, the, each episode is is shocking and emotional and like it's um it's one of those whiplash things of like I'm I'm learning uh I'm laughing I'm crying a lot and then I'm laughing again and then I'm just really angry. Uh there's a number of episodes out on that now. Check out the pitchkc.com to read my interview with her. Uh yeah, so been on a real true crime spree that I think is mostly about false crime. A lot of things where Somebody really, really dropped the ball and uh, trying to figure out how we get resolution and restitution for those situations. So that's where my head is at this week. Not the most joyful opening, but I hope I gave some interesting recommendations on things to look into. The book and the show, both very much worthwhile. And of course, please keep following Kevin Strickland's trial, because if anything goes wrong here, we need to take to the streets to demand that this finally get resolved. It has become, as the mayor calls it, embarrassing. And we agree on this one. Anyway, this week on Streetwise, I've got a really cool interview. Uh, we've got Nick's Music Corner. First up, our friend Jason from Stolen Dress Entertainment is doing a reading from our magazine. Uh, this story is Big Sky Country from Allison Harris. Take it away. Big Sky Country. Riley went to Montana and came back Anna by Allison Harris. For Anna Kennedy Domville, known by her stage name Riley the Musician, it took a road trip to Montana to really discover herself. The 22-year-old from Lee's Summit, Missouri, found her trip so successful that the resulting writing and recording sessions evolved into her third studio album in as many years. The aptly titled album, Montana, is Domville's first album under label Snafu Records, which she signed to in June. 
She is going through a period of change at the moment. Not only is she getting to release her first label-backed project in tour, but she recently came out as a trans woman. In a tweet from September 19th, she wrote, Riley went to Montana and then came back as Anna, is how I want today to be remembered as. For Domville, the work of polishing the final project led her to entirely new discoveries about herself and her art. This is something entirely new where I went to a place and created something I would want to listen to in ten years, she says. A lot of it is just about finding home and where is home. Montana was nearly finished and ready for release when Domville was signed up by Snafu. The label went on to spearhead the final details of the album and its release, coming this fall. The exact release date is still under wraps, as she finishes recording one more track. Domville's music up to this point has been an eclectic blend of pop, hip-hop, and synthetic dance music. Montana comes from a number of fresh aesthetic and musical inspirations, both electronic and folk. She's currently obsessed with Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska, particularly Atlantic City, the work of Daniel Johnston, and Montana and Alaska Reed's Big Bunny Project. Additionally, she is drawn to a style of songwriting inspired by freestyle, where artists just come up with words or a melody on the spot and fill in the blanks later. She credits this affection to listening to rap artists like Childish Gambino and Kanye West growing up. Hip-hop is the most dynamic genre in the world, she says. When I was 16, I got the album because of the internet. I listened to Graduation over and over again. The super synth sounds on I Wonder just sound incredible. These hip-hop influences can be heard on songs like Iced Out, Reloaded, which was a previous release remade for the Montana album. The song features glitching beat and a distinct, confident flow. Domville's music career has risen on the tide of diligently engineered music feeding off a sense of magic and otherworldliness. This aesthetic has thus far been essential to the Riley the Musician sound, as she grew a following in an online music sphere known by some as hyperpop. I grew up listening, when I was 17 or 18, to A.G. Cook and Sophie, all the PC music roster all the time, says Domville. They're what got me into online music, and then I met people online like Umru, Frax, and just became friends with people in those circles. I just got into it that way. Sophie, who passed away unexpectedly in January 2020, remains one of the biggest influences to hyperpop as a whole and to Domville personally. She meant everything, especially to trans people, says Domville. I think she really opened my eyes to that as a young kid and made it okay. I grew up in a pretty Christian environment, and it was always like, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. Both as a transgender woman and an electronic artist, Sophie's legacy is one that Domville's career honors in many ways. Her dreamy songwriting and revisionist approach to music, many of her songs were performed live only and were often slightly different when she played them, are two things the artists share. Whether it be the songs on Montana or previous releases she's changed to fit her current narrative, Domville shares this drive to grow in her music. As for the future, Domville's dreams involve isolating herself and honing her craft. I would be happy just moving to Montana in the middle of nowhere and just flying people up and making music, she says. That's really my vibe. I love songwriting and I love producing with people. I'm so much better just on my own. I feel like the pandemic changed so much permanently that you can succeed anywhere now and do whatever. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for Nick's Music Corner. Hello, I'm Nick Spacek, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. Way back in 2007, Lawrence Garage Rock Trio The Shebangs released a single called Maybe Yes, Maybe No, and ever since, there's been promise of a full-length recording. And now, here we are 14 years later, and it's available! Entitled Now Is When, appropriately enough, the official release date isn't until October 29th when you'll be able to buy vinyl and CDs from Boston's Fabcom Records, but it's streaming now on Bandcamp, and it is definitely worth the wait. 
The Shebangs are one of those bands that plays out once or twice a year, and a bunch of folks my age and older pack onto the patio at the Gaslight or inside at the Replay and bop around like we're in our 20s again because the songs that Tamara Heim, Kit Cole, and Brett Dillingham put together are these perfect distillations of what a band should sound like after coming of age while mainlining a solid diet of nuggets and pebbles compilations during the college radio explosion. While every song on Now Is When Is Worth Your Time, I rapidly honed in on Tightrope as one of my favorites. The guitar tone on this song just sounds so much like The Pretenders, it has me obsessed. You could put this on a playlist between like Message of Love and a bunch of Devo and Dickie songs, and you'd never know it was recorded this decade, not 40 years ago. You can purchase The Shebangs, Now Is When, digitally at theshebangs.bandcamp.com or on CD and vinyl at fabcomrecords.com. The Shebang's next show is on Halloween, October 31st, opening for the Haunted Creepies at the Gaslight in Lawrence. Here's Tightrope.
So uh, in July of uh, 1981, the Hyatt Regency Hotel in Kansas City, Missouri, suffered a structural collapse, and the two overhead walkways collapsed full of partygoers onto other people. It killed 114 people and injured 216. Um, For years, it was the largest uh, structural collapse massacre uh, until 9-11 happened. Uh, and it doesn't get a lot of attention. It wasn't something I knew about until I moved to Kansas City, and there's a lot of people in Kansas City that I find have never heard about it or or read up on it or seen just the shocking, shocking photos from all of it. Uh, today, I'm sitting down with uh, Richard Serrano. He has a new book out called Buried Truths and the High Skywalks, The Legacy of America's Epic Structural Failure. Um It is just a fascinating, fascinating look at this, uh, told through hundreds of interviews. Um, And each chapter in this is uh, just a single person's story told from their perspective uh, that really gives a look at what is just a horrific event. Um, You know what? We'll just get into it. Here's me and Richard. Rick, welcome to the show. Would you introduce yourself to the audience? Hi, Rick Serrano. Um, I live in Washington, D.C. I was a I was born in Kansas City, raised in Kansas City. I was a started the Kansas City Star as a copy boy in 1972, and uh, I left in 1987. I covered the um, I covered the Kansas well the Hyatt uh, collapse was one of the things, but but I left as an editor and I went to the Los Angeles Times, mostly in the Washington D.C. bureau covering the. Uh, Department of Justice, the FBI, the War on Terror, and then I left the LA Times in the at the end of 2015, and now I write books. I've written six books altogether. What have your other books been about? Well, the first one was about the the Oklahoma City bombing, which I covered for the Times. Uh, another one was about the Civil War, and one about the Old West. The last book before this one was about uh, the United States Army and its uh, experiment with death row at Fort Leavenworth during the 1950s. They had 16 prisoners on death row, uh, ha- exactly half were white and half were black. They executed all the blacks and they commuted the whites, even though the, uh, the offenses that the whites committed were just as bad as the blacks. Not only did they commute the sentences, they later paroled them and they went home. Man, so you was, love cheery material, don't you? <laughs> well, you know, you, you, I started on that one way back at the star when I, my last year there, and then I, then I left and I took all my, my, my material with me. And then I was able to get back at it a couple of years ago. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a sad commentary. So uh, you have a new book out that is about the Hyatt Regency hotel disaster of 1981. Um, I, I find this one so fascinating because up until nine 11, it's the biggest building death collapse situation that we've had in America and it's yet it's something that like I'd never really heard of until I moved to Kansas City and that might be from being a child of 9-11 where there was something to stand it up but uh, everything about it is so fascinating and complicated and uh, I think when I was starting I was going to ask you like why write a book about this? And a few chapters in, I was like, I can see why he wrote a book about this. Would you explain what happened so that people can understand? <laughs> well, what happened is uh, the Hyatt Hotel in Crown Center in Kansas City was, was opened in 1980, December of 1980. 
and its main feature in the lobby was were two suspended skywalks. They were the second floor and fourth floor, and they were suspended from the ceiling. And uh, uh, they began having these tea dances to to bring in uh, customers, not not necessarily stayovers, but uh, part, local people to go and party. And they would be on a Friday evening from seven to nine. They started a bit bump, bumpy, but they got very very popular. And so popular that on the last sea dance, there were up, upwards of 2,000 people. These were mostly middle-aged or older couples who remembered swing dance and some of the old tunes. And there was, there was uh, six or seven uh, portable bars in the lobby. And there's six or seven lines high to get drinks. And it was shoulder to shoulder. And on the final tea dance of July 17th, um, halfway through the dance, about 7.05 p.m., the two skywalks, which were connected together, the second and fourth floor, collapsed. And these are massive, gigantic uh, steel and concrete, tons and tons of material falling down. This fourth floor hit the second floor, and then they both collided down together. Uh, 114 people were killed. 200 were injured. And actually, and I covered 9-11 too, but actually, uh, this is the worst uh, man-made structural failure in the history of the United States. Um, the, the difference is with 9-11, it was a terrorist attack. Yeah, there's there's so much about this one that it comes down to like um, these walkways, like it, it wasn't even the sheer number of people, like they would have collapsed with a third of, of the same number of people. And that the building was sort of something that came together out of like high unemployment and low bidding for fast work. Like there's there's so, so many socioeconomic factors that go into a building collapse of this magnitude. And one of the things I think I was most horrified to read in, about in the book is that there's, there's so many people whose deaths came about in very different ways outside of the collapse. There were people that wound up trapped under there and, and drowned. Uh, there was somebody whose leg was chainsawed off by a, by a doctor and then later died. Like there's there's a bunch of horrors revolved around this beyond just people being crushed. <laughs> that, that's right. It was a horrible, horrible scene. And uh, there was a there was a water pipe that ran through the upper skywalk. So when the skywalks burst, water just poured into the uh, lobby. And so they had to shut off. It took a while to shut off the water, but they also had to shut off all electricity because we were, we were afraid of some sort of bark and start a fire. There were a lot of people who were trapped, some who uh, unfortunately were trapped in there for quite a while and did not make it. Others who did make it, uh, who I interviewed, uh, told of, uh, of incredible stories about being uh, convinced they were going to die, praying, uh, hoping for help. And, uh, and in, in the midst of all this comes these uh, all these Kansas City firemen and police and, and EMTs, and there was just no way they could lift those slabs. They were just too, too uh, heavy. And, uh, and so they, they, there was a tremendous amount of guilt among first responders. And, and people think about the victims who, were, who died and were injured, sure. and they should. But the first responders, I'm telling you, back then in 81, there was, there was no PTSD. There was no days off or, or therapy. I mean, you just came back to work the next day. And a lot of these guys, I mean, suffered uh, horrible guilt. Uh, they lost their jobs. There were suicides. There was divorce, alcoholism, drugs, and they, they paid a hell of a price for that, for what they did. And they, they, they many of them went home in, in anguish, but they, they, they couldn't do more to save more lives. 
Yeah, it's and and uh, what I found fascinating was that each chapter of your book is sort of structured around the story of a different individual, and it actually goes back basically to the construction of the building where it was already sort of a death trap in the way that things were falling on people. Like there was there was enough signs that something was very wrong here long before uh, July seventeenth. I think that's right. There were there were some there were some signals. They uh, the, the hotel was built under a fast track method, which back then was fairly new. But you saved a lot of money by do, going a little bit faster. In other words, you would you would start some of the uh, construction without having all the designs. And there was also an incredible lack of inspections. The city inspectors were hardly ever there at all. Some of them, like for a three two and a half year job, they're like eighteen hours total. A lot of the, uh, a lot of them just would show up and they didn't even get out of the car. It'd be like a five minute kind of thing. So there was sure. that. And then the general contractor went belly up halfway through it to which Hallmark had to uh, step in and, and remove them from the site. So there were a lot of things like that. But what most significantly was halfway through construction, the, uh, the lobby ceiling collapsed overnight. Like it's like it's uh, four in the morning on a Sunday in the fall around this time. Uh, and had that happened during the daylight hours, it would have crushed and killed 50 iron workers easily. Anyways, they, uh, so they had to rebuild all that. And uh, Donald Hall, who was in chairman of Hallmark, which owned the, they were the ones who built it. It's a Hyatt hotel, but Hallmark built it and owned it. Uh, to his credit, he, he insisted that there be some inspection panels put in all, uh, were all the connections to steal the concrete, steal the steel connections so that later, inspectors could go in and, and check them. Well, they did that, they put the panels in, but they never told Hyatt when they delivered the building to the Hyatt Corporation, they never said, hey, by the way, you can you can check from time to time and look in there and you and, and had they known then, had they done that, they would have seen the washers and the bolts and and, uh, and the material starting to bend and bow and they would have known they had a ticking bomb in those skywalks. So who wound up taking responsibility for this? Because I find this journey fascinating. <laughs> Well, uh, it came down to two, two, the two top structural engineers and their punishment was they lost their licenses in the state of Missouri. That was it. They, uh, there, was a, there was a fatal uh, design change halfway through in the way, the way the rods ran to connect the two skywalks. And they made that on the fly over the telephone, which was again, part of the fast track system. But, but so they, they, they were hearings in, in, 90, uh, in 1984 in, uh, in Missouri and, and the Missouri revoked their licenses in Missouri, state of Missouri only. As for all the, the rest of the case, I mean, there was, there was, you know, just piles and piles of lawsuits and, and uh, every, every single one was settled. Uh, nobody ever went to trial. Uh, nobody was held, uh, although they, nobody was held accountable, Hallmark or Hyatt or any of the, any of the others uh, uh, responsible. So there was no, there was, there was no, like I covered the Boston Marathon bombing trial. And in that trial, uh, you had people coming in uh, in wheelchairs or on, on crutches, and you had people crying on the witness stand. Well, you would have had that in Kansas City in a Hyatt trial. You would have had victims and, and uh, maybe some first responders, too. And, and uh, there was none of that. There were, the victims never um, were able to, to go to court and, and voice their, uh, their suffering. And so Hyatt uh, Hallmark, specifically, uh, settled all those cases. And in return to getting the settlements, Hallmark, again, to its credit, donated a huge amount of money to, uh, 
philanthropic uh, causes in Kansas City and and, uh, and all the all the lawsuits went away. I I find it fascinating that one of the engineers, uh, Mr. Gillum, uh, actually spun out uh, this into uh, being a touring engineer disaster lecturer. Like it, it actually begat a whole new career for him uh, after avoiding all responsibility. Like it's it's just shocking to me that like there was never any sort of actual reckoning for this minus Hallmark making donations and two engineers losing their license in Missouri. No, there, you're right. There wasn't a lot of consequences from all that. And as far as Gillum, I mean, he, even though he only lost his license in Missouri, he basically nobody wanted to work with him anymore. And he was one of the top, he was in the top of his field. I mean, he, he had a huge corporation and tons and tons of employees. And he basically all but went bankrupt. And, and in order to try to get back on his feet, he did go around, uh, around the country giving these tours. He came to Kansas City, as a matter of fact, and then would have slideshow and explain what happened and why, who was responsible and how we can learn from the Hyatt and, and, and the structural problems that, uh, that can happen. Which I, I suppose begets the, the much bigger question here, which is, what is the legacy of the Hyatt? Like, did people immediately stop doing that sort of construction? Uh, did people start taking inspections seriously? Like, how is it possible that we've avoided another one? Did everyone actually learn, or are we just sort of like, well, that was a one-off? <laughs> no, I don't think people thought it was a one-off. I think it was a big warning sign, and there were some significant changes made, particularly in the engineering field. There was before then, it was always uh, kind of a shady thing. Who was in charge? Really, the architects, the engineers, the project managers, and the American Society of Engineers put out new directors that it's the engineer. He's the guy who's ultimately responsible. He's the guy who's got to check everything. And, and inspections were boosted up. And in fact, uh, uh, later at, in Kansas City, they ended up firing many of the inspectors uh, there. But but there were changes like that were made, and, and including in architecture. And, and, and people were uh, more, more careful. And, and, and the closest thing we've seen was just this summer in, in Florida, South Florida, the Surfside condos. And uh, where you had these condos collapse and you had 94, 94 or 98 people die. And again, and again the questions that uh, they're going to face are the same ones that Kansas City faced exactly 40 years ago was who was responsible? Why did these collapse? Uh, who built these? You know, and, and, uh, and those first responders will have the same nightmare, trust me, after, after that. Uh, the Florida one always particu particularly sticks in my craw because I remember watching the 24-hour news cycle and it being two weeks later and they were still like 120 people are still missing and i was like i think we can call it on on that they're not really missing here yeah. uh yeah. so do you so do you think that there was any sort of I, you you talked about how like the city changed in reaction to this do you think there was a national change from engineering groups was there was there a lot of fear from people in the early 80s, like, oh, we can't fuck up that bad again? <laughs> no, 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 there were, there was a lot of national, there was a whole new guidelines and and, uh, and whole new uh, 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 way that engineers went about it. The Hyatt is, is taught in all the big engineering schools even to this day. I mean, it's, some, some universities, it's a course, you take the Hyatt course and people know about it. And uh, yeah, I don't know, it, it, they had some major, it was some major significance that was. I, I guess then I have to like you've talked about covering 9/11 and you have a whole book about the Oklahoma City bombing and I guess 
there's there's a major question here of like which is which is worse uh, a negligent system or a deliberate terrorist attack well that's a tough one to answer uh, right <laughs> obviously 9-11 was horrific just horrific and, and uh but so was the high end so was oklahoma city i mean they're all terrible right. they're just terrible uh if you, you and they're all in some ways avoidable i mean the 9-11 the fbi and uh and others missed some uh, missed some uh, signs uh, of the for the, of the hijackers. They they you know they knew they were in the country and they knew they were doing things. The same in Kansas City on the Hyatt. They had they checked these as those access panels and looked for the looked that and inspected the connections. They might have seen some things. Maybe they slowed down the process a little bit. Um, so yeah, I mean in hindsight it's easy to to do that. But uh, but there, I guess that, for all three there's sort of a thing that comes up of like. This was bad, but something structurally really fell apart that made it even worse, uh, which which feels terrible. <laughs> well, I think that's right. I mean, you you, you feel awful because because it was done. It, it wasn't done with any malice, but it was done. It was really done out of complacency. That that you know we've done we've done this so many times. We've done these connections a million times. We've looked at these a hundred times. And we don't need to look at them again. You know. And and that kind of complacency is can come back to really haunt you, and it did. Uh, speaking of haunting, I suppose um, of everyone that you sort of profiled in the book of their individual stories, which which one sticks with you the most? Which one was just a lot to take in? <laughs> you know, all of them really. I interviewed two hundred and forty people for this book. Interestingly enough, since I've interviewed them, twenty of them have died. But this is an older group of people. And and several of those who died died from COVID, but but anyway, of all of them, uh, uh, I, I can't think of there's not a one I like better than the other. But one, the fellow young man who lost his leg, uh, he was a bartender at the New Stanley Bar in Kansas City, and I used to hang out there a little bit. I was in my twenties, and we would get off work at the Star about midnight because I was I worked for the morning edition, and we would go over to the New Stanley, and I knew him a little bit. Now, if he hadn't died, I probably would have forgot him. I've known many bartenders through my, <laughs> my years, but but he was just a nice guy, and I remembered him. And uh, and uh, the thing that happened to him, he got kind of stuck in and out of the skywalks. He was he was he, the skywalks hit him in his leg, and they couldn't get him out. They couldn't move him, and and uh, they couldn't lift the skywalk. And and uh, he was starting to uh, uh, go into shock and back and forth. And there happened to be a doctor in the who was having dinner with his family and. I found the doctor and uh, he lived in Prairie Village and I went to his house and we had a delightful, well, we had a long conversation and he, and he told me how he went down down there. He was a surgeon, he was a pediatric surgeon and he got down and, and uh, told him we have to, uh, the only way to save you is to is to uh, remove your leg and and, uh, and so they did, he used a chainsaw. And, and uh, I mean, there was no sterile equipment. There was no, it was not operate. It wasn't an operating room scene setting right. at all. They had to get him out quick. I mean, he was gonna, he was gonna bleed out. And then I found the uh, paramedic who who rode with him in the ambulance to the St. Luke's Hospital. And then I found the police officer who uh, who was there and recorded his death. And and uh, and his parents who uh, they lived in Paola had had uh, driven into the city and were, went to the Alameda Hotel and they were got a roll of dimes and were hitting the payphones and calling every hospital they could to find where their son was and 
Finally, the phone rang at four in the morning and told him to go to St. Luke's. And he said that the father said, okay, I'll be right over. And they said, no, no. He said, we'll come get you. And he, and he kind of understood what that meant. And so they drove him, the Red Cross drove him to the hospital and, and they just showed him a Polaroid, a picture of his son's face. And, and, uh, and uh, he came out of, the, out of there and told his wife, he said, we're done looking. So it's, it's a tremendous book, very well written, uh, an unpleasant read and an unpleasant look at part of the past that like clearly we have not fully examined. Uh, what is the name of the book and where can people find it? The name of the book is called Barry Truce and the Hyatt Skywalks. Uh, I know it's at Barnes and Noble and Rainy Day Books there. Uh, probably the easiest way uh, is, is uh, Amazon, but uh, yeah, it's, it's out. It came out uh, just a few weeks ago and uh, doing pretty good, I think. And uh, Well, congrats on it. It's, it's a fascinating, fascinating story. And thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you, my friend. All right. And ladies and gentlemen, that's been the Streetwise podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please check out the great work we are doing each and every day at thepitchkc.com. Uh, please check out our most recent issue of The Pitch, which is on stands and available digitally right now. It is our best of issue, best of 2021. It's a wonderful, wonderful issue. Go see which one of your friends won in, in all these 500 categories. Go out and support these local businesses. Um, just thank you guys so much for listening. Take care of each other out there. Pitch in and we'll make it through. Bye, 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 bye. This was a production of the Pitch Podcast Network. The Pitch is Kansas City's independent source for news and culture. Check out thepitchkc.com to see more podcasts from us, including information for how to subscribe to The Pitch or become a sustaining member. Story ideas or feedback? Write to tips at thepitchkc.com. Pitch in and we'll make it through.